0: But, you know, a few days before Christmas, there were these two men down in Florida, and they decided to go sailing while their wives went Christmas shopping, which sounds like a good trade for me. And while they were sailing, a terrible storm arose, and they had a hard time and difficulty keeping the boat under control. And then they, they maneuvered their way back to land, and then they got grounded on a sandbar. So they had to jump overboard They had to push with all their might to get the boat into deeper water so they could get off that sandbar. And while they were doing this, the wind was blowing and waves were crashing on them and they were just soaking wet. They were, they were knee deep in mud and they were just trying to push this, uh, this boat off the sandbar. And finally, one of the friends looked at the other man and said, you know, this sure beats Christmas shopping. <laughs> I and mean, I would agree with that. You know, when we, when we talk about preparing for Christmas, you know, Christmas shopping is one of those activities we think about when we think about being prepared. Are, are you prepared for Christmas? Well, let's see, is the tree up? Okay, check. Is, uh, do we have some decorations? Check. What's left? Well, we, there's some presents we have to buy for, for loved ones and family and friends. We have to go see Santa somewhere and, and we have to go uh, 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 sit on his lap and tell him what we want, no, at least what my family does, that. Uh, but we have to, certain things we have to prepare for. But today, as we talk about preparing for Christmas, I want to look at a scripture today that tells us how we can spiritually prepare for Christmas. Because, as we know, Christmas is much more than what we see, much more than what we buy, and what we experience in our country. It is all about Jesus Christ. And so, today, we are in Luke chapter 3 which is takes place right after some of the events of the Christmas season. And it says in verse 1, Luke sets the scene here. He says that in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Licinius, tetrarch of Abilene, shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Verse 7, he said therefore to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, and what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusation and be content with your wages. And as the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire, and his winnowing fork is in his hand, to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. Heavenly Father, as we worship you today, we thank you so much for the the sights, the sounds, the songs of of Christmas that we experienced this morning. How even though today is December 5th, we still have a few weeks before Christmas. still have a few weeks to prepare our hearts for Christmas. And as we get lost in the the food and the hustle and the bustle and all these things of Christmas, Father, that we would prepare our hearts to experience that true meaning of Christmas here in 2021. Father, I pray that my words are yours today, that you speak through me with your spirit. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Today I want to give us three actions Three actions we can take as we start preparing our hearts for Christmas. Three actions we can take as we start preparing our hearts for Christmas. First, we prepare for Christmas simply by turning from the sins in our life. By turning from the sins in our life. Verse 1 and 2 gives a a kind of a a background as Luke introduces John the Baptist, and he introduces John the Baptist in a similar way that the Old Testament prophets would be introduced. He sets the political scene, he sets the religious scene for a new prophet to emerge. Now there had been, it had been 400 years since a prophet had been given the Word of God. 400 years since a prophet had emerged from the Israelites. To give a word from the Lord. So Luke makes it very clear that John is the next and really last what we would call Old Testament prophet. He is there to give God's word. So this is why he writes it the way he does. He is the last prophet before Jesus and he is on the scene. And after years of silence, not hearing from God, John challenges God's people with a message from the Lord. It says in verse 3 that he went into all the region around the Jordan. And what did he do? He he proclaimed a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And then he quotes in chapter 4 Isaiah, which we were in Isaiah 9 last week. So John, John went around baptizing the Jewish people, and he baptized those who knew they were not living right. That's what the baptism was. He would go into the wilderness and he would say, God says to turn from your sins that he might forgive you. And then he would, he would put people in the water and he would take and push them out of the waters so with baptism, right? They'd be submerged and then they would, they would come out. And they, and they would do this signifying that they, that they weren't living quite right. And so, yes, they were, they were turning from their sins and that God would forgive them. He offers them an opportunity to to make a decision to turn from their ways. Now, why is he doing it now? Because Jesus is on the way. Now, at this time, Jesus was a grown man. He was getting ready to start his ministry. He had been a baby. He had been a a teenager. He had worked as a carpenter. And he was getting ready to come onto the scene It's a 30-year-old rabbi. So he does this at this point in time for a reason. And gives them an opportunity to, to turn and start a renewed life. You know, 1 John 1 tells us this. 1 John 1 says this, that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So when you turn to Jesus and you ask for him to forgive you, we, we call that being saved, you, you're, you're born again. But even once you know Christ, you still have this idea of you're going to still sin, hopefully, uh, not as much as before and, and not in patterns and ways you used to. But there's still going to be days and times where we realize, you know, Lord, I, I have sinned and I'm in sin and, and I need God's forgiveness. Now, he's already forgiven us for that on the cross, but we still need that relationship to be renewed and we still need to have our conscience cleared. And that's what this First John is saying. Because the Christian consistently asks God to forgive him so that he can cleanse us from that which is unrighteous. Verse 10 says, if we say we haven't sinned, we make him a liar. And God's word isn't in us if we claim that, you know, I don't sin anymore. I don't sin. If you ever hear someone saying that, it's probably a good sign that the word of God is not with them there's a man praying with his pastor at the altar. He came down at the end of the service and, and he was praying and he asked the pastor to pray with him. And the, and the man was turning from sin in his life and, and he was praying at the altar and he said, Lord Jesus, take the cobwebs out of my life. And that's what he was, he was praying, you know. And he, he said, Lord, take these cobwebs out of my life. And the pastor said, Lord, kill the spider. (Laughter) You know, many times we ask the Lord to forgive us from some sin, but we leave the source of the temptation in our life. Amen? The cobwebs would be a whole lot easier to clear out if we kill the spider, because the spider produces the cobwebs, as you know. By repenting, there's, there's hope in forgiveness of sins. Now, we don't earn forgiveness by repenting. That's not what he's saying, but we position ourselves for God to forgive us as we turn from sins in our life. So as we, we have to change our direction as we seek to follow Christ and be forgiven. That's what repentance is. I rep- repent at least two or three times a week when I realize I'm going the wrong way driving down the road. I, I'm, I'm, I'm so thankful for the apps that give me directions. But every now and then, when I'm trying to turn, the app GPS quite hasn't caught up with me. Never happened to you before? Had, quite hadn't caught up, and I turned the wrong way, then I got to turn back around. And, and that's what you do when you're going one way, and you reverse and go the opposite way. That's what you're doing. You're admitting you're going the wrong way, and you have to make an action and turn around and go the other way. That's what repentance means. It's a change of mind. It's a change into the other direction. So John quotes Isaiah and he applies it to our present lives. And so as we enter into the Christmas season, this is a reminder for us to turn from the sin that has us entangled. There's going to be all kinds of opportunities to do that this Christmas. You know, many times the source of our sin can be opportunities, can be opportunities to turn from it. You know why I say this? Because we're going to be around a lot of family in Christmas time. amen. There might be relationships that are strained there might be family issues that haven't been dealt with you might be holding on to some bitterness in your life maybe it's that uncle who always has the inappropriate joke I don't know right Christmas is a time for us to be able to turn from that sin in our lives secondly we prepare for Christmas by not only turning from sin, but turning from ourself, turning from our selfish ways. Now, you can be sinful, but you can be selfish and not necessarily sinful. They're not one and the same. Turning from ourself. Look at verse 7. Now, there were crowds that came out, and so he says to the crowds, now, he's not talking to the Pharisees here, he, he, he talks to the crowd, and he, and he calls them a bunch of snakes, but if you're trying to build an audience, that's not the way you would do it. That's, no, you know, uh, that's not a church growth strategy. Well, good morning, snakes. How are y'all doing today? What are you doing here, you brood of snakes? That's what he tells them. And he says, who warned you to flee? Why are you out here? Who, who has warned you about this wrath? And he says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And then he says, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones, he points to stones clearly on the ground, to raise up children for Abraham, and the ax is laid to the root and every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown in the fire. What he's saying is that true repentance produces fruit. You can't just say, well, you yeah, have changed,' but then there's no, there's no proof of that change. And your race or your family can't save you on its own merit. That's what he says by saying that, that they're saying, well, we're Jewish. We're, we're, we're children of Abraham, so God's going to love us no matter what. And he said, God doesn't need you. He can raise up children of Abraham from these stones on the ground. So you can't rest on that merit. John says that, that they can't rest on that. And he warns them that repentance and judgment are, are intricately linked and so that the time before Jesus' return is short, historically speaking. And he says that this ax is already laid at the root, which means that it's already coming down. If it's laid at the root, it's already almost there. It's like in slow motion, the ax is coming. And so he says, historically speaking, you have a short time to turn to Jesus. And says, you'll be cut down and thrown into the fire unless... You repent. This is our default status. Look at Ephesians 2. Paul just tells us this. He says, and you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air and the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. What John is doing is he's giving them a heart check. He says, don't just come out here and do the popular thing. I'm not trying to build a crowd. I'm not not trying to build some kind of of, uh, necessarily a movement even. Don't just come out here because your friend told you about it. Are you here for the right reason is what John the Baptist is saying. You know, when people start doing things together as groups, it can be a fad. You know, even baptisms can become fads. People get—I've heard stories all the time. People got baptized. Well, my friend got baptized. I want to get baptized, and 20 years later, I realized I didn't know what I was doing. This is why, when we have baptism, we counsel each one. This is why we don't offer what's been known as spontaneous baptisms, where some churches just happen—people just hop into the water—and I don't know about that. Because baptism doesn't save you; just a sign. It's a sign that you've turned to Jesus. And so he says, if you're going to get baptized, you, you better really have your mind right that you're going to turn your life around. So this is not some popular activity. It's a spiritual activity. This is what John is guarding against him. So he tells them this, and he says in verse 10, well, what should we do? In other words, what they're saying, how do we practically live like this? What's, what's this look like when we're living? Like, h- how does this look in our life? If we're turning from sin and himself and, and following Jesus, what does this look like in our life? Practically tell me, as I go about my job, what's this look like? What does this fruit look like? And so he says in verse 11, well, I'll tell you what it looks like. Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Now, having two coats... An outer garment and an inner garment was a luxury. Not all the people had one. So you had, a, you had an outer one that kept you from the elements, and you had an inner one, you take the outer one off. You had to relax with the inner one. But not everybody had that. It was a luxury. So he's saying that someone who is a true Jew, a, a, a true person that loves God, they will also love others, and that they'll be willing to share their second coat with someone who has no coats or has an old tattered coat. In other words, you will, you will love other people. That's what it means to turn from self as we start loving others. First John 2 says this, Whoever says that he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling, This is the overarching message of both the Old Testament and the New Testament, that a God-fearer is someone who loves God, both loves God, and loves others. And this is the practical application that John is getting at. So then the tax collectors say, well, what about us, verse 12? How do we do this? And he says, collect no more than you're authorized. Now, it's well known, in, in, in Bible scholars would say that the tax collectors, the Jewish tax collectors— worked for the Roman government. So they were considered traitors to the Jews. And they were greatly despised by their fellow countrymen and fellow Jews because they were allowed to tax what the government said to tax, and then they could overtax if they wanted to. They said, well, you know, go tax 10%, and then you go out and tax 12%. They're not going to check on you about that. They'll just take your word for it. And so, tax collectors had a horrible reputation because there was no accountability and they really could charge whatever they wanted to as long as they gave the Roman government their share. So, many of them did this. Many of them would just take a little bit more off the top. Well, government says, I need this percent. I'll go a little bit more and keep some for myself in addition to what the government is already paying them. It would be a tax collector tip. John says, That's not loving your brother. He says, Collect no more than you are told to collect. And then the soldiers that served in the Roman government, the Jewish soldiers, came out, verse 14, and they said, And what about us? What shall we do? How do we live this life? He says, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. The soldiers, also worked for the Roman Empire, and and they were able to abuse their authority if they wanted to. They had the swords. They had the authority to arrest and to round up. He says, don't do that. Don't abuse your authority. That's how you're going to live as a Jewish believer in God who serves in the army. Love your brother. Well, since it's Christmas time, and children love Christmas, as we know I want to share with you how children have described what loving others is like. You know, sometimes children have the best theology. Did you know that? Rebecca, age eight, says this. When my grandmother got arthritis, she couldn't bend over and paint her toenails anymore. So my grandfather does it for her all the the time, even when his hands got arthritis too. That's love, Rebecca says. Billy, age four, says this, when someone loves you, the way they say your name is different. You just know that your name is safe in their mouth. <laughs> Chrissy, age six, says that love is when you go out to eat and give somebody most of your French fries without making them give you any of theirs. <laughs> you know, Chrissy, that is love. What happened to my family, we have to buy larger and larger French fries because dad eats them all. To get, we have to get the basket of fries now. Right. Danny, age seven, says that love is when my mommy makes coffee for my daddy and she takes a sip before giving it to him to make sure the taste is okay. Amen. And to make sure there's no poison in there, right? <laughs> <laughs> Nika, age six, says if you want to learn to love better, you should start with a friend who you hate. And finally, Tommy, age six, says love is is like a little old woman and a little old man who are still friends even after they know each other so well. (laughs) Amen. That's what love is. We can prepare for Christmas by turning from ourselves, loving God, loving others. If you don't know how to do it, I just gave you a bunch of examples. Loving others like ourselves. Thirdly, number three, prepare for Christmas by turning to Jesus. Turning to Jesus. Verse 15 says that as the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John whether he might be the Christ. The Jewish people were on the lookout for this coming Messiah. And even though John was not of the lineage of David, And did not have the the prophesied traits of the Messiah, his message of repentance resonated in such a way that they, they were preparing for Jesus to come and they questioned even if he wasn't him. And John says this in verse 16. He says, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming and I'm not worthy to untie his sandal and he'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So John mentions two realities here. First, he says this that a master's slaves would often untie their shoes. And John is stating that he is not even worthy to be the Messiah's slave, yet yet, yet alone to to be the Messiah himself. So he says that. And then he talks about how John is baptizing with water for repentance, but Jesus is is bringing fire. And what he's saying is that there's fire in the form of the Holy Spirit as a purifying agent for believers, but also there's fire as judgment for those who do not turn to him. This is what John's saying. Because at some point, you're going to be baptized by one of the fires. Look what Philippians 2 says. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of Father of God the Father. That's what he's saying, that at some point, every life will Bow this knee and confess. It's just a matter of when you do it. That's what John is saying. He mentions the same thing in verse seventeen, and then in eighteen it says that with many other exhortations he preached good news to the people. Ken was a was a man who worked on the Alaska pipeline in the nineteen seventies, and he worked up in the cold. Uh, of the year and, then, and then for the whole year and then he came back home and so he he, he worked up in Alaska in the cold so he you know, grew his hair out how long beard and you know you don't have to worry about looking good up there and and, and he came back home after working on it and, he, and the first Sunday he walked through the church doors and sat on the back row and everybody was a little nervous because he looked like a grizzly bear long beard and everything and that morning the gospel was preached the preacher gave an invitation the music started, and old Ken came down the aisle, and tears came down his face, and he, and he gave his life to Jesus. Well, the next Sunday, he came back, and he was dressed in three-piece suit and no beard, clean-shaven. And they said, "Well, what, Ken, what, why, why did you dress up? Why did you change your looks? And he said, Jesus changed me on the inside, and I want people to know it, so I changed on the outside. That's what Jesus does for us when we turn to Him. Sometimes when He changes us on the inside, we can make changes on the outside so people will know that our hearts are with Jesus and so that we can share Jesus with others as we prepare for Christmas. Heavenly Father, as we close our time together today, thank you so much for how you do change us. And how you're always changing us. And how your love knows no bounds. there's an opportunity for all of us to turn to you. And like John the Baptist said, time is short. It's fleeting. We never know if we'll even have another day in life. We don't know what tomorrow brings. So we should live life as if that axe is at the root of the tree. We don't ever know, Father. Lord, put this season in perspective for us as we close our time. Lord, if there's one in here that's never placed their faith in you, that they would do so today. That they would ask forgiveness of sins, and you would do that. And for those in here, Lord, that have been following you for years, that there's sin in their life they can turn from and turn to you and trust you with their life. Lord, so much of our sin happens because we try to do it everything ourselves. Lord, let us trust you to do it through us. Father, we love you. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.